Chapter Four of A Silent Witness by R. Austin Freeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Four. Septimus Maddock deceased. It was getting well on into November when I strolled one afternoon into the hospital museum, not with any specific object, but rather vaguely in search of something to do. During the last few days I had developed a slight revival of industry, which had coincided, oddly enough, with a marked deterioration of the weather. And, pathology being my weakest point, the museum had seemed to call me, though not very loudly, I fear, to browse amongst its multitudinous jars and dry preparations. There was only one person in the great room, but he was a very important person, being none other than our lecturer on medical jurisprudence, Dr. John Thorndyke. He was seated at a small table whereon was set out a collection of jars and a number of large photographs, of which he appeared to be making a catalogue. But intent as he was on his occupation, he looked up as I entered, and greeted me with a genial smile. "'What do you think of my little collection, Jardine?' he asked, as I approached deferentially. Before replying, I ran a vaguely inquiring eye over the group of objects on the table, and was mighty little enlightened thereby. It was certainly a queer collection. There was a flat jar which contained a series of five differently coloured mice, another with a similar series of three rats, a human foot, a hand manifestly deformed, a series of four fowl's heads, and a number of photographs of plants. "'It looks,' I replied at length, like what the auctioneers would call a miscellaneous lot. Yes, Dr. Thorndyke agreed. It is a miscellaneous collection, in a sense. But there is a connecting idea. It illustrates certain phenomena of inheritance which were discovered and described by Mendel. Mendel? I exclaimed. Who is he? I never heard of him. I dare say not, said Thorndyke though he published his results before you were born. But the importance of his discoveries is only now beginning to be appreciated. "'I suppose,' said I, "'the subject is too large and complex for a short explanation to be possible.' "'The subject is a large one, of course,' he replied. "'But, put in a nutshell, Mendel's great discovery amounts to this.' that, whereas certain characters are inherited only partially, and fade off gradually in successive generations, certain other characters are inherited completely, and pass unchanged from generation to generation. To take a couple of illustrative cases, if a negro marries a European, the offspring are mulattoes, forms intermediate between the negro and the European. If a mulatto marries a European, the offspring are quadroons, another intermediate forms, and the next generation gives us the octoroon, intermediate again between the quadroon and the European. And so, from generation to generation, the negro character gradually fades away and finally disappears. But there are other characters which are inherited entire or not at all, and such characters appear in pairs which are positive or negative to one another. Sex is a case in point. A male marries a female, and the offspring are either male or female, never intermediate. The sex character of only one parent is inherited, and it is inherited completely. 
the characters of maleness or femaleness pass down unchanged through the ages with no tendency to diminish or to shade off into one another that is a case of mendelian inheritance I ran my eyes over the collection, and they presently lighted on the rather abnormal-looking foot, hanging, white and shriveled, in the clear spirit. I lifted the jar from the table, and then, noticing for the first time that the foot had a supernumerary toe, I inquired what point the sursun illustrated. "'That six-toed foot,' Thorndyke replied, "'is an example of a deformity that is transmitted unchanged for an indefinite number of generations.' This brachydactylous hand is another instance. The brachydactyly reappears in the offspring either completely or not at all. There are no intermediate conditions. He picked up the jar, and, having wiped the glass with a duster, exhibited the hand which was suspended within. And a strange-looking hand it was, broad and stumpy, like the hand of a mole. There seem to be only two joints to each finger, I said. Yes. The fingers are all thumbs, and the thumb is only a demi-thumb. A joint is suppressed in each digit. It must make the hand very clumsy and useless, I remarked. So one would think. It isn't exactly the type of hand for a list or a paganini. And yet we mustn't assume too much. I once saw an armless man copying pictures in the Luxembourg, and copying them very well, too. He held his brush with his toes, and he was so handy with his feet that he not only painted really dexterously, but managed to take his hat off to a lady with quite a fine flourish. So you see, Jardine, it is not the hand that matters, but rather the brain that actuates it. A very indifferent hand will serve if the motor centres are of the right sort. He replaced the jar on the table, and then, after a short pause, turning quickly to me, he asked, "'What are you doing at present, Jardine?' "'Principally idling, sir,' I replied. "'And not a bad thing to do either,' he rejoined with a smile. "'If you do it thoroughly and don't keep it up too long, how would you like to take charge of a practice for a week or so?' "'I don't know that I should particularly care to, sir,' I answered. "'Why not? It would be a useful experience.' and would bring you useful knowledge, knowledge that you have got to acquire sooner or later. Hospital conditions, you know, are not normal conditions. General practice is normal medical practice, and the sooner you get to know the conditions of the great world, the better for you. If you stick to the wards too long, you'll get to be like the nurses, who seem to think that all the world's a hospital and men and women only patients. I reflected for a few moments. It was perfectly true. I was a qualified medical man, and yet of the ordinary routine of private practice I had not the faintest knowledge. To me, all sick people were either inpatients or outpatients. "'Had you any particular practice in your mind, sir?' I asked. "'Yes. I met one of our old students just now. He is at his wit's end to find a locum tenens. He has to go away to-night or to-morrow morning, but he can't get anyone to look after his work. Won't you go to his relief?' It's an easy practice, I believe. I turned the question over in my mind, and finally decided to try the venture. That's right, said Dr. Thorndyke. You'll help a professional brother at any rate, and pick up a little experience. Our friend's name is Batson, and he lives in Jacob Street, Hampstead Road. I'll write it down. 
He handed me a slip of paper with the address on it, and wished me success. I started at once from the hospital, already quite elated, as is the way of the youthful, at the prospect of a new experience. Dr. Batson's establishment in Jacob Street was modest to the verge of dinginess. But Jacob Street itself was dingy, and so was the immediate neighbourhood, a district of tall, grimy houses that might easily have seen better days. However, Dr. Batson himself was spruce enough, and in excellent spirits at my arrival, as was evident when he bounced into the room with a jovial greeting, bringing in with him a faint aroma of sherry. "'Delighted to see you, doctor!' he exclaimed in his large, brisk voice. "'That doctor was a diplomatic hit on his part. They don't call newly qualified man doctor at the hospital. I met Thorndyke this morning and told him of my predicament. A busy man is the great unraveller, but never too busy to do a kindness to his friends. Can you take over tonight?' "'I could,' said I. "'Then do. I want particularly to be off by the 8.30 from Liverpool Street. Drop in and have some grub about 6.30.' I shall have polished off the day's work by then, and you'll just come in for the evening consultations. "'Are there any cases that you'll want me to see with you?' I asked. "'Oh, no,' Batson replied, rather airily, I thought. "'They're all plain sailing. There's a typhoid, he's doing well, fourth week, and there's a tonsillitis, and a psoas abscess. That's rather tedious, but still, it's improving. And an old woman with a liver. You won't have any difficulty with them. There's only one queer case, a heart.' "'Valvular?' I asked. "'No, not valvular. I can tell you that much. I know what it isn't, but I'm hanged if I know what it is. Chappie complains of pain, shortness of breath, faintness, and so on, but I can't find anything to account for it. Heart sounds all right. Pulse quite good. No dropsy, no nothing. Seems like malingering, but I don't see why he should malinger. I think I'll get you to drop in this evening and have a look at him.' "'Are you keeping him in bed?' I asked. "'Yes,' said Batson. "'I am now.' Not that his general condition seems to demand it, but he's had one or two fainting attacks, and yesterday he must needs fall down flop in his bedroom when there was nobody there, and, by way of making things more comfortable, he drops his medicine bottle and falls on the fragments. He might have killed himself, you know, Batson added in an aggrieved tone. As it was, a long splinter from the bottom of the bottle stuck into his back and made quite a deep little wound. So I have kept him in bed since, out of harm's way and there he is, deuced sorry for himself. But, as far as I can make out, without a single tangible symptom. No facial signs? Nothing unusual in his colour or expression? Batson laughed and tapped his gold-rimmed spectacles. Ah, there you are. When you've got minus five D and some irregular astigmatism, and a pair of glasses that don't correct it, all human beings look pretty much alike. A trifle sketchy, don't you know? I didn't see anything unusual in his face, but you might. Time will show. Now you cut along and fetch your traps, and I'll skip round and polish off the sufferers. He launched me into the outer greatness of Jacob Street, and bounced off in the direction of Cumberland Market, leaving me to pursue my way to my lodgings at Gospel Oak. As I threaded the teeming streets of Camden Town, I meditated on the new experience that was opening to me, and, with youthful egotism, I already saw myself making a brilliant diagnosis of an obscure heart-case. Also, I reflected with some surprise on the calm view that Batson took of his defective eyesight. A certain type of painter, as I had observed, finds in semi-blindness a valuable gift which helps him to eliminate trivial detail and to impart a noble breadth of effect to his pictures. But to a doctor, no such self-delusion would seem possible. Visual acuteness is the most precious item in his equipment. 
I crammed into a large Gladstone bag the bare necessaries for a week's stay, together with a few indispensable instruments, and then mounted the jingling horse-tram of those pre-electric days, which, in due course, deposited me at the end of Jacob Street, Hampstead Road. Dr. Batson had not returned from his round when I arrived, but a few minutes later he burst into the surgery, humming an air from the Mikado. "'Ha! Here you are, then, punctual to the minute!' He hung his hat on a peg, laid his visiting list on the desk of the dispensing counter, and began to compound medicine with the speed of a prestidigitator, talking volubly all the time. "'That's for the old woman with the liver, Mrs. Much, Cumberland Market. You'll see her prescription in the day-book. Suppose you don't know how to wrap up a bottle of medicine. Better watch me. This is the way.' He slapped the bottle down on a square of cut paper gave a few dexterous twiddles of his fingers, and held out for my inspection a little white parcel like the mummy-case of a deceased medicine-bottle. "'It's quite easy when you've had a little practice,' he said, deftly sticking the ends down with sealing-wax. "'But you'll make a frightful mucker of it at first. Which prophecy was duly fulfilled that very evening. "'What time had I better see that heart-case?' said I. "'Oh, you won't have to see it at all. Man's dead. Message left half an hour ago. Pity, isn't it?' I should have liked to hear what you thought of him. Must have been fatty hard. I'll write out the certificate while I think of it. Maggie, where's that note that Mrs. Samway left? The question was roared out vaguely through the open door to a servant of unknown whereabouts, and resulted in the appearance of a somewhat scraggy housemaid bearing an opened note. Here we are, said Batson, snatching the note out of its envelope and opening the book of certificate forms. Septimus Maddock was the chappie's name. Age fifty-one. Address, 23 Gayton Street. Cause of death? That's just what I should like to know. Primary cause, secondary causes. I wish these infernal government clerks had got something better to do than fill printed forms with silly conundrums. I shall put morbus cordis. That ought to be enough for them. Mrs. Samway, that's his landlady, you know, will probably call for the certificate during the evening. Aren't you going to inspect the body? I asked. "'Lord, no! Why should I? It isn't necessary, you know. I'm not an undertaker. Wish I was. Dead people a good deal more profitable than live ones.' "'But surely,' I exclaimed, "'the death ought to be verified. Why, the man may not be dead at all.' "'I know,' said Batson, scribbling away like a minor poet. "'But that isn't my business. Business of the law. Law wastes your time with a heap of silly questions that don't matter, and leaves out the question that does.' asks exact time when i last saw him alive which doesn't matter a hang and doesn't ask whether i saw him dead bumble was right law's an ass but still i persisted leaving the legal requirements out of consideration oughtn't you for your own sake and as a public duty to verify the death supposing the man were not really dead that would be awkward for him said batson and awkward for me too if he came to life before they buried him but it doesn't really happen in real life. Premature burial only occurs in novels. His easy-going confidence jarred on me considerably. How could he, or anyone else, know what happened? I don't see how you arrive at that, I objected. It could only be proved by wholesale disinterment, and the fact remains that, if you don't verify a reported death, you have no security against premature burial, or even cremation. Batson started up and stared at me, his wide-open, pale-blue eyes looking ridiculously small through his deep, concave spectacles. "'By Jove!' he exclaimed. "'I'm glad you mentioned that. 
about cremation, I mean, because that is what will probably happen. I witnessed the chappie's will a couple of days ago, and I remember now that one of the clauses stipulated that his body should be cremated. So I shall have to verify the death for the purpose of the cremation certificate. We'd better pop round and see him at once. With characteristic impulsiveness, he sprang to his feet, snatched his hat from its peg, and started forth, leaving me to follow. "'Beastly nuisance, these special regulations,' said Batson, as he ambled briskly up the street. "'Give a lot of trouble and cause a lot of delay.' "'Isn't the ordinary death certificate sufficient in a case of cremation?' I asked. "'For purposes of law it is, though there is some talk of new legislation on the subject. But the company are a law unto themselves.' They have made the most infernally stringent regulations, and as there is no crematorium near London excepting the one at Woking, you have to abide by their rules. And that reminds me. Here Batson halted and scowled at me ferociously through his spectacles. Reminds you, I repeated, that they require a second death certificate, signed by a man with certain special qualifications. He stood a while frowning and muttering under his breath and then suddenly turned and bounced off in a new direction. "'Going to catch the other chappie and take him with us,' he explained, as he darted out into the Hampstead Road. "'Be off my mind, then. A fellow named O'Connor, assistant physician to the North London Hospital. He'll do if you can catch him at home. If not, you'll have to manage him.' Batson looked at his watch, holding it within four inches of his nose, and broke into a trot as we entered a quiet square. Halfway up, he halted at a door which bore a modest brass plate inscribed Dr. O'Connor, and seizing the bell-knob, worked it vigorously in and out as if it were the handle of an air-pump. "'Doctor in?' he demanded briskly of a startled housemaid, and, without waiting for an answer, he darted into the hall, down the whole length of which he staggered, executing a sort of sword-dance, having caught his toe on an unobserved doormat. The doctor was in, and he shortly appeared in evening dress with an overcoat on his arm, and apparently in as great a hurry as Batson himself. "'Won't it do tomorrow?' he asked, when Batson had explained his difficulties and the service required. "'Might as well come now,' said Batson persuasively. "'Won't take a minute, and then I can go away in peace.' "'Very well,' said O'Connor, wriggling into his overcoat. "'You go along, and I'll follow in a few minutes. I've got to look in on a patient on my way up west.' I shall be late for my appointment as it is. Write the address on my card here. He held out a card to my principal, and when the letter had scribbled the address on it, he bustled out and vanished up the square. Batson followed at the same headlong speed, and again overlooking the mat, came out on the pavement like an ill-started sprinter. Gayton Street, at which we shortly arrived, was a grey and dingy side street exactly like a score of others in the same locality, and number twenty-three differed from the rest of the seedy-looking houses in no respect, save that it was perhaps a shade more dingy. The door was opened in answer to Batson's indecorously brisk knock by a woman, or perhaps I should say a lady, who at once admitted us, and to whom Batson began, without preface, to explain the situation. "'I got your note, Mrs. Samway. I was going to bring my friend here round to see the patient. Very unfortunate affair. Very sad. Unexpected, too.' didn't seem particularly bad yesterday. What time did it happen?' "'I can't say exactly,' was the reply. "'He seemed quite comfortable when I looked in on him the last thing at night, but when I went in about seven this morning he was dead. I should have let you know sooner, but I was expecting you to call.' "'Hm, yes,' said Batson. "'Very unfortunate. By the way, Mr. Maddock desired that his remains should be cremated, I think.' 
yes so my husband tells me he is the executor of the will you remember in the absence of any relatives all mr maddock's relations seem to be in america have you got the certificate forms asked batson yes my husband got all the papers from the undertaker this afternoon very well mrs samway then we'll just take a look at the body have to certify that i've seen it you know mrs samway ushered us into a sitting-room where she had apparently been working alone for an unfinished mourning garment of some kind lay on the table leaving us here she went away and presently returned with a sheaf of papers and a lighted candle when we rose and followed her to a back room on the ground floor it was a smallish room sparely furnished with heavy curtains drawn across the window and by one wall a bed on which was a motionless figure covered by a sheet our conductress stood the candlestick on a table by the bed and stepped back to make way for batson who drew back the sheet and looked down on the body in his peering near-sighted fashion the deceased seemed to be a rather frail-looking man of about fifty but beyond the fact that he was clean-shaven i could form very little idea of his appearance since in addition to the usual bandage under the chin to close the mouth a tape had been carried round the head to secure a couple of pads of cotton wool over the eyes to keep the eyelids closed as batson applied his stethoscope to the chest of the dead man i glanced at our hostess not without interest mrs samway was an unusual-looking woman and i thought her decidedly handsome though not attractive to me personally she seemed to be about thirty rather over the medium height and of fine juanesque proportions with a small head very gracefully set on the shoulders her jet-black hair formerly parted in the middle was brought down either side of the forehead in wavy but very smooth masses and gathered behind in a neat precisely plaited coil the general effect reminded me of the so-called clithia having the same reposefulness though not the gentleness and softness of that lovely head but the most remarkable feature of this woman was the colour of her eyes which were of the palest grey or hazel that i have ever seen so pale in fact that they told as spots of light like the eyes of some lemurs or those of a cat seen in the dusk a peculiarity that imparted a curiously intense and penetrating quality to her glance i had just noted these particulars when batson having finished his examination held out the stethoscope to me may as well listen as you're here said he and turning to our hostess he added let us see those papers mrs samway as he stepped over to the table i took his place on a chair by the bedside and proceeded to make an examination it was of course only a matter of form for the man was obviously dead but having insisted so strongly on the necessity of verifying the death i had to make a show of becoming scepticism accordingly i tested both by touch and with a stethoscope the region of the heart needless to say no heart sounds were to be distinguished nor any signs of pulsation indeed the very first touch of my hand on the chilly surface of the chest was enough to banish any doubt no living body could be so entirely destitute of animal heat i laid down the stethoscope and looked reflectively at the dead man lying so still and rigid with his bandaged jaws and blindfolded eyes and speculated vaguely on his personality when alive and on the hidden disease that had so suddenly cut him off from the land of the living and insensibly by habit i suppose my fingers strayed to his clammy pulseless wrist the sleeve of his nightshirt was excessively long almost covering the fingers and i had to turn it back to reach the spot where the pulse would normally be felt in doing this i moved the dead hand slightly and then became aware of a well-marked rigor mortis or death stiffening in the arm of the corpse 
a condition which I ought to have observed sooner. At this moment, happening to look up, I caught the eye of Mrs. Samway fixed on me with a very remarkable expression. She was leaning over Batson as he filled up the voluminous certificate, but had evidently been watching me, and the expression of her pale, cat-like eyes left no doubt in my mind that she strongly resented my proceedings. In some confusion, and accusing myself of some failure in outward decorum, I hastily drew down the dead man's sleeve and rose from the bedside. "'You noticed, I suppose,' said I, "'that there is fairly well-marked rigor mortis.' "'I didn't,' said Batson. "'But if you did, it'll do as well. Better mention it to O'Connor when he comes. He ought to be here now.' "'Who's O'Connor?' asked Mrs. Samway. "'Oh, he's the doctor who's going to sign the confirmatory certificate.' Again a gleam of unmistakable anger flashed from her hostess' eyes as she demanded, "'Then who is this gentleman?' "'This is Dr. Humphrey Jardine,' said Batson. "'Apologize for not introducing him before. Dr. Jardine is taking my practice while I'm away. I'm off to-night for about a week.' Mrs. Samway withered me with a baleful glance of her singular eyes, and remarked stiffly, "'I don't quite see why you brought him here.' She turned her back on me and I decided that Mrs. Samway was somewhat of a tartar, though, to be sure, my presence was a distinct intrusion. I was about to beat a retreat when Batson's apologies were interrupted by a noisy rat-tat at the street door. "'Ah, here's O'Connor,' said Batson, and, as Mrs. Samway went out to open the door, he added, "'Seem to have put our foot in it, though I don't see why she need have been so peppery about it. And O'Connor needn't have banged at the door like that, with death in the house. He'll get into trouble if he doesn't look out.' Our colleague's manner was certainly not ingratiating. He burst into the room with his watch in his hand, protesting that he was three minutes late already, and he added, "'If there's one thing that I detest, it's being late at dinner. Got the forms?' "'Yes,' replied Batson. "'Here they are. That's my certificate on the front page. Yours is overleaf.' Dr. O'Connor glanced rapidly down the long table of questions, muttering discontentedly. "'Made careful external examination? Hmm.' Have you made a post-mortem? No, of course I haven't. What an infernal rigmarole! If cremation ever becomes general, there'll be no time for anything but funerals. Who nursed the deceased? I did, said Mrs. Samway. My husband relieved me occasionally, but nearly all the nursing was done by me. My name is Letitia Samway. Was the deceased a relation of yours? No, only a friend. He lived with us for a time in Paris, and came to England with us. What was his occupation? He was nominally a dealer in works of art. Actually, he was a man of independent means. Have you any pecuniary interest in his death? He has left us about seventy pounds. My husband is the executor of the will. I see. Well, I'd better have a few words with you outside, Batson, before I make my examination. It's all a confounded farce, but we must go through the proper forms, I suppose. Yes, by all means, said Batson. Don't leave any loophole for queries or objections. He rose and accompanied O'Connor out into the hall, whence the sound of hurried muttering came faintly through the door. As soon as we were alone, I endeavoured to make my peace with Mrs. Samway by offering apologies for my intrusion into the house of mourning. For the time being, I concluded, I am Dr. Batson's assistant, and as he seemed to wish me to come with him, I came without considering that my presence might be objected to. I hope you'll forgive me. My humility appeared entirely to appease her. In a moment her stiff and forbidding manner melted into one that was quite gracious, 
and she rewarded me with a smile that made her face really charming. "'Of course,' she said, "'it was silly of me to be so cantankerous and rude, too. But it did look a little callous, you know, when I saw you playing with his poor dead hand. So you must make allowances.' She smiled again, very prettily, and at this moment my two colleagues re-entered the room. "'Now then,' said O'Connor, "'let us see the body, and then we shall have finished.' He strode over to the bed, and, turning back the sheet, made a rapid inspection of the corpse. "'Ridiculous farce,' he muttered. "'Looks all right. Would, in any case, though. Parcel of wrapped tape. What's the good of looking at the outside of a body? Post-mortem's the only thing that's any use. What's this piece of tape plaster on the back?' "'Oh,' said Batson, "'that is a little cut that he made by falling our broken bottle. I stuck the plaster on because you can't get a bandage to hold satisfactorily on the back. Besides, he didn't want a bandage constricting his chest.' "'No, of course not,' O'Connor agreed. "'Well, it's all regular and straightforward. Give me the form and I'll fill it up and sign it.' He seated himself at the table, looked once more at his watch, groaned aloud, and began to write furiously. "'The Egyptians weren't such bad judges after all,' he remarked as he laid down the pen and rose from his chair. "'Embalming may have been troublesome, but when it was done, it was done for good. The deceased was always accessible for reference in case of a dispute, and all this red tape was saved. Good night, Mr. Samway.' He buttoned up his coat and bustled off, and a minute or so later we followed. "'By Jove!' exclaimed Batson. "'This business has upset my arrangements finally.' I shall have to buck up if I'm going to catch my train. There's all the medicine to be made up and sent out yet, to say nothing of dinner. But dinner will have to wait until the business is all settled up. Don't you hurry, Jardine. I'll just run on and get to work. He broke into an elephantine trot and soon disappeared round a corner, and, when I arrived at the surgery, I found him posting up the day-book with the speed of a parliamentary reporter. Batson's dexterity with medicine bottles and wrapping paper filled me with admiration and despair. I made a futile effort to assist, but in the end he snatched away the crumpled paper in which I was struggling to enswath a bottle, dropped it into the waste paper basket, snatched up a clean sheet, and slap bang in the twinkling of an eye he had transformed the bottle into a neat little white parcel as a conjurer changes a cocked hat into a guinea pig. It was wonderful. My host was a cheerful soul but restless. He got up from the table no less than six times to pack some article that he had just thought of, and after dinner, when I accompanied him to his bedroom, I saw him empty his trunk no less than three times to make sure that he had forgotten nothing. He quite worried me. Your over-quick man is apt to wear out other people's nerves more than his own. I began to look anxiously at the clock, and felt a real relief when the maid came to announce that the cab was at the door. "'Well, good-bye. Doctor?' he sang out cheerily, shaking my hand through the open window of the cab. "'Don't forget to keep the stock-bottles filled up. Saves a world of trouble. And don't take too long on your rounds. Ta-ta!' The cab rattled away, and I went back into the house, a full-blown general practitioner. End of chapter 4